0: Hello there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Today's guests are Michael Johnston and John Apple, American organists from Michael's Music Service, a blog and website dedicated to making old organ music live again. In this conversation they will share their ideas about what it takes to restore, reprint and distribute organ music, most of which is otherwise unavailable. Let's go to the show. I'm so delighted to finally meet you through uh, audio conversation on Skype, Michael Johnston and John Apple. Uh, Welcome to the show.
1: Hello Vitas. thank you for having
0: us. Uh, Yes, hello John too, Uh, uh, it will be an inspiring conversation I'm sure, because you gentlemen are uh, so experienced in making all the music live again, and I'm so eager to to hear what you have to say about uh, your work, about uh, how you create this old music and recreate it in, in new ways, right? So, uh, for the beginning, let's start uh, just a little bit uh, uh, in, in saying uh, who are you and what do you do?
1: Well, I'm Michael Johnston and for many years I worked in all kinds of things like uh, computer departments of insurance companies, but my training is uh, music. I went to school at a little little college called Mars Hill College in North Carolina mountains and then I went to Westminster Choir College, which everybody knows, in Princeton.
2: Yes, I'm please. John Apple, and I am a graduate of Houghton College and a master's degree from Westminster Choir College in organ and church music. I'm a church musician, organist, choir director and have been in, had a great interest in music from the past
0: wonderful and uh, what is Michael's music service all about what is uh, what's the main goal of, of your uh, operation
1: well we started by taking music which had been abandoned by the publishers and trying to make it possible for other people to have it This was years ago, before things like the Internet Music Library and the Sibley and the other free services started. So, um, here's basically what we do has changed a little bit, but what we do now is restore, reprint, and distribute organ music, most of which is otherwise unavailable. Our editions offer explanations of archaic terms, what I call a capsule biography, photos and other interesting information that helps the performer to understand and present a musical and historically informed performance.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. And um, uh, I noticed uh, uh, when I started uh, this uh, my my blog uh, Secrets of Organ Playing and um, I started uh, researching what other Uh, uh, blogs are out there on the internet uh, uh, writing and talking about uh, organ music and performance and organs. I came across your website of course and your blog and I'm subscribed to this blog and uh, it's very curious that you provide these links to various snippets about uh, organ related ideas from the newspapers and magazines from all over the world. Wonderful. I do. Uh,
1: I do try to find out things and present some interesting, uh, uh, I- interesting organs. Uh, for example, I I've been hoping to see something about uh, Saint John's in Vilnius, and and maybe the, some people would write a, a, about that. But so far, I haven't found anything. Maybe you could write an article about that for the local newspaper.
0: Uh, I'll see what I can find. Yeah, that would be great idea. Of course, um, it uh, it it's worth uh, worth uh, writing because it's of course the largest pipe organ in Lithuania. It it has three manuals, sixty-four f- stops. It's all mechanical, so it's really. I have
1: a, a picture of you. I have a picture of you sitting at the console. Uh huh. <laughs> that, it's on your site.
0: Uh-huh, great thanks. Thanks. <laughs> uh, it's it's tremendous uh, fun to play this instrument and uh, especially at night with large reverberation. Yes. Well, well so thank,
1: you. thank you for what you're doing in your blog and I've noticed on the secrets of of organ playing podcast you've had another blogger or two.
0: Yeah, uh, Michael Hammer recently he he is uh, a blogger and he writes uh, not only blo- uh, about organ stuff but because he is also the pianist and composer too so he uh, assimilates these uh, all three fields into one uh, experience because he is also liturgical in, uh, organist and uh, he he writes so from his heart and uh, tells stories about his organ playing at church and how he connects with his uh, congregation. It's really fun. Great. So, uh, tell us uh, more about uh, how you make uh, old music live again. Well, what I'll do is
1: first off start off with, with a few definitions. Uh-huh. Um, and, and what we're doing today for the listeners of the podcast is this is the workshop that we present just assume that there's 50 people out in the con- in the, um, the the assembly, and uh, Vetus is going to be those 50 people, and he's going to stop me with questions, just the way they do at the workshop. Excellent. So we'll start out. We'll start out with a few uh, definitions. What exactly does it mean to restore, reprint, and distribute in the context of sheet music? Restore means to put it back the way it was or the way it should have been originally. If a part of a measure is missing, I find the measure from another source and put it back. If there is an obvious accidental missing or other engraver error, I supply it. If the music has been copied and shrunk, I restore it to its original size on full-size paper. Reprint means to print the music again, this time on heavy acid-free paper that resists tearing and will not fall from the music rack like the 20-pound copy paper in your normal computer printer. Also, the reprint will match the appearance of the original engraved plates. Preserving this usually means fewer pages and more music on each page, meaning fewer page turns. It also means that if you do tear a page, you will need to go quite far into the paper to damage the music. The smaller outer margins used since World War II mean that the music notes are often damaged
2: by the dog earring and tears. Distribute means to get the music out where organists can find it, and see it, and hopefully play it. We need to sell it to make money to get more of it available. This is the main difference between sell and distribute. We also send copies for review to encourage the younger organists who have never heard of much of this music to examine it and try it out. We also exhibit at conventions. I eagerly accept recordings to share with others, and dozens of these are available for free on our website. In some cases, I offer the music for free online to attract even more attention.
1: Why don't we just sell all the. uh, Why don't we all just download scans from Sibley Library or Library of Congress or Internet Sheet Music Library? This is discussion that people have all the time, but mostly the points are made without full knowledge of the facts. Much of our time will be spent on this subject. So Vedas, do you have any questions on that introduction?
0: Of course, it's so uh, exciting to hear you talk about uh, how you uh, restore, reprint, and distribute, right? But how about? Uh, uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the period, time period uh, you work for for the most part? Is it uh, before World War Two, or or uh, even before World War One, or even nineteenth century music?
2: The music we restore is primarily from roughly 1850 to until about World War II. Uh huh. Much of the, this music um, from these periods, especially in the United States, uh, has not been taught to uh, organ students in learning institutions during, the, especially since World War II, because the The music and the organs were considered to be uh, not in fashion. So consequently, publishers let this music go out of print, and uh, consequently, organists were not familiar with it.
1: Well, and also, I try. this is something that I do, uh, because in schools in America, we generally are presented with European organ music. And to combat that, well, combat is maybe too strong a word, in order to try to make a balance for that, I tend to concentrate on American music, a music that was published in America, written by at least in the beginning, Europeans who moved to America, but published here. And I try to do that. Uh, Some of it is on uh, the Library of Congress, but you'd be surprised how many people don't know about it. They can't find it. They don't know how to print it. And in many cases, there are mistakes, really big mistakes, which we'll get into uh, later, things like treble clefs instead of bass clefs, uh, incorrect key signatures, notes that are on the wrong spot. Uh, and we correct all of that in the in the reprints. One of the recent uh, examples of that was the Payne variations on America. Uh, John, t- tell them about that. We had to go to the Boston Library to find the original because the publisher way back when made a mistake. Mm-hmm.
2: John Knowles Payne, who was a late 19th, early 20th century composer, wrote in several organ pieces and had the first professorship of music in the United States. He wrote a set of variations approximately 1861, 62 on the Star Spangled Banner. And this was published uh, by within about 10 years, but there was a discrepancy in the published version, just basically in one or two measures that when uh, getting access to a manuscript that is in the Boston Public Library found that there was a significant difference. So we went back into the published version and changed that to correct it to what Payne's manuscript had in it.
0: Wonderful. Yeah, the
1: that was presented in the uh, published edition was uh, it resulted in a chord which you would never think Payne would have accepted. That's one of the ways you know that there's an error when there's an obvious dissonance which is not resolved according to the style of the time. And uh, it, it was really clear from the manuscript that the engraver, it simply made an error
0: fantastic story uh, uh, of course Star Spangled Banner is so important uh, for entire uh, country but n- but also for organists because uh, it's a really fun tune to, to improvise and uh, to play uh, and I guess this, uh, this uh, pain uh, piece that you are talking about uh, uh, if you can recreate it today and make it available this is really really useful for people
1: Yeah, that's what I thought. So anyway, continuing on uh, with the topic that so many people today, especially young people who deal with uh, mobile phones as their primary computer, they don't really understand what is important about printing on sheets of real paper as opposed to PDFs and electronic scans. So I include this little bit in December two thousand and two, John Apple wrote this, and I put this on our website and and I'll show it to you now because a lot of people don't realize he wrote it is of interest to note that since Warner Brothers, owned now by Time Warner has acquired the bellwin h w Gray etc catalog, much of it has been discontinued, and that keep in mind this is in two thousand and two in fact. In comparing the catalog of 2000 to 2002, half of the organ music is gone from the catalog. I talked with an employee who stated that an organ piece must sell 200 copies per year in order to remain in print. I cannot imagine how many organ pieces can meet that number. The employee also said that they are not even keeping archive copies. This is really a tragedy when you consider that during the last 100 years H. W. Gray published over 1,000 organ pieces in its St. Cecilia series, in addition to its contemporary series and other works. Most of the J. Fisher series is gone, and that is only the organ music. Much of the choral catalogs of these companies are out of print. What is being published in their names bears little resemblance to the older music. These companies will not continue to publish any sheet music as more people download for reduced prices or for free. Supporting a small company like ours can keep a few things available for a bit longer. And since John wrote that in 2002, the music controlled by Warners has been passed around and now currently resides with Alfred. The passing around is an internet property or I, uh, an intellectual property or IP catalog and it presents only the control not the actual music they don't actually have the music so if I have to apply for a license for Alfred for something from the H.W. Gray they don't actually have the music they can grant the license because they hold the control over the intellectual property but it's up to me to find the music restore it and print it All they do is collect the license. So John, do you have any more comments on
2: that? So consequently it makes it really difficult when people are trying to find pieces that uh, were commonly available and then suddenly uh, over the last several decades they find that they cannot locate them, they'll contact the original publisher uh, or their successor And the publisher says, you can make a copy or we'll grant you permission to make a copy, but you have to locate it. H. W. Gray was originally an independent publisher in New York City. This was uh, from the early 20th century, roughly about 1905 until 1970. This was acquired at that time when the Gray family no longer wanted to have control and to lead that company. It was purchased by Bellwin Mills which itself had been a combination of Bellwin Publishing and Mills Music Publishing. They controlled this for 15, 20 years. And then Bellwin Mills, was, which was based in Melville, New York, was purchased by Coca-Cola and uh, I believe some subsequently Columbia Pictures all of that merchandise moved to Florida. And in the process, there were many things that were lost uh, in, the, in the packing and in the preservation and the shipping. So th- this music ended up in Florida. Then after a number of years, the, um, there were a couple of other owners that subsequently ended up out in California with Alfred. So every time there's been a transition from one owner to another, there has been actual music as well as uh, any, any access to, to the music lost. So the, that you basically end up sifting out uh, so much that is, becomes less and less available.
0: Mm -hmm. It's so sad. It's really sad that that, uh, so much valuable and uh, rare collections and music uh, is not available anymore with these original publishers, right? And that's where you come in, right, Michael and John?
1: Yeah, because the other side of that, you know, if you thought John maybe was joking when he said Coca-Cola owned it, no, uh, organ music owned by Coca-Cola. It's just his nonsense. But then again, Warner's, as in Jack Warner and the Warner Brothers, which is a big motion picture company, it doesn't make sense for them to own organ music either. These were simply corporate buys that they decided to do it and then they decided, well, we need to sell it. So the other side of that whole picture uh, is the demise of the music store. How many of us have had uh, a music store that we used to go to with buyer music? You'd, you'd send your piano student, you'd send your organ student, you'd send your violin student. You'd send them to the local music store to buy their music. Well, which music stores are about, are around anymore? Mm-hmm. We've lost Pedelson's in New York, a nationally known, we've now we'll lost Frank Music. We we've lost the, the great music stores and the small music stores and the only thing left is online.
0: Mhm. Yeah. That's the current state of of, uh, of affairs. I think that independent publishers and uh, independent bookstores and uh, across the board, not only in America but but in Europe as well, they they are disappearing bit by bit. I think because of yeah. these global global sellers like Amazon and others.
1: Yeah, and it gives a false sense of a false sense of of lasting. uh uh, that is wrong for people to think they don't understand the young people especially don't understand that just because it's on the internet in december of 2015 doesn't mean that it will be on the internet in december of 2016. we saw that with the warner icking library which is a free download library they just decided well we couldn't pay for it anymore and it went off the internet it's back now as a part of the internet sheet music library but what happens if the university or the company or or whoever is providing the service decides well we don't want to we don't want to pay for the servers anymore all of the music that was available online for free download goes away
0: mhm that's very very um tricky situation I I couldn't agree more, and um, so much of, of of this fascinating and exciting music, which was uh, living uh, its life uh, and uh, it was played at homes and in churches, right, uh, a generation or two ago, it's now it's now probably lost lost uh, for 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 many years, unless somebody like you can uh, resurrect it again.
1: Well you know the resurrection uh, uh, John got a call from one of our customers in Georgia uh, about something that you know everybody thinks that it should be there uh, 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 John tell tell him about the story of the Sanctus that, that was last
2: month. We had a customer from Georgia that was interested in playing. Uh, on the organ, the Sanctus from the St. Cecilia Mass of Charles Gounod, and she of course could not find anything that was available for this, and so she contacted us. I looked into what was uh, published and found really only one old version of it from the 1890s that had been published by Arthur P. Schmidt in this country. And we made this available again uh, recently within the last month. And uh, she was very happy to have received quite a good transcription of the choral and orchestral parts into an organ version Mm -hmm. of this very popular piece. Uh, that people who know choral music especially or love tenor soloists will know this particular movement from this mass.
0: Yeah, I know this piece very well because just a few months ago I uh, accompanied uh, the choir and the, the soloists uh, of this Cecilia mass by Guno on the on the largest mechanical organ in the world in, in Latvia, in Liepaja. And it was really fun. I know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah. Well, there there again is uh, uh, something else that I I love to see and talk with young people, but going to an organ convention is only one way of meeting them and talking to them. When you go to an organ convention, you're finding uh, the people who already know. So you get an idea of, well, do they even know who Guno was? Because the young people today are fed the music that they get from the, uh, well, it, it's not just the, the uh, record companies, but it's it's all kinds of things. Television, it, they're basically fed music, and that never, ever includes music from our classical history. So the idea that they're growing up without knowing, oh, let's say the, the Verdi, the, the one of the pieces that was played over and over, be the Verdi, the great march from Aida. How about Wagner? Wagner was all over the place years ago and today the only thing the younger people seem to know is the Valkyries mm-hmm. and all of the other things uh just Wagner who what they they n- they don't hear it and unless they're curious enough to go yeah. look for it uh who wants to play a transcription of something that nobody recognizes
0: yeah I agree agree and uh, little by little the 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 range of opportunities for for uh, younger generation is diminishing right uh, you get to play only the the, the most popular Music right, the Bach toccata Vidor Toccata, and the s- similar pieces and your uh, your repertoire sort of diminishes uh, daily or, or at least in in, in time and that 's a pity because uh, there is so much seven centuries of organ music right from from about fourteen hundreds uh, or even thirteen hundreds written published manuscripts available today but um, not too many people know about it.
2: When you consider that in the John Henderson Dictionary of of organ music, he has over 10,000 composers who have written for the organ. Most people do not realize this, and a small fraction of this is what actually over the last 150 years has been taught in our music schools, and uh, a very great sifting shall we say of what is considered most important and if as an organist you simply restrict yourself to that highly winnowed version of organ literature you really come up with a very small number of pieces that you hear over and over and over again which are great works but there are other pieces too we've also in studying music in general we're taught about the innovators, the composers who made innovations in composition, which leaves out a lot, of, a lot of composers who really wrote good music, sometimes fun music, that really were not innovative. And this is what we've tried to do in, in bringing back some of this music from especially the middle of the 19th century up through World War II because there was the organ had great following especially before the period of radio and television and recordings and it is able to provide a, a great variety one of the reasons that I've discovered when I was in graduate school was that a lot of this music was not talked about at all, the instruments as well. They were just considered to be something that were passe. But I discovered that in looking at this music, you really can challenge yourself as a musician to be more creative if you think of yourself as an orchestral conductor or as a composer for orchestra, that how can I bring out various things about the music through my instrument that are not simply putting on a group of stops and playing from beginning to end, but that actually you are challenging yourself to think more orchestrally, and therefore are going to be challenged to be able to play the notes, the right rhythms to have creative registrations and the use of the mechanics of the organ you have available, which may be greater than what was actually put on the page by the original composer or arranger. And this music provides a vehicle by which you can become more creative in your musicianship.
0: Absolutely, I agree, John. If you have this uh, large list uh, body of uh, repertoire and you're constantly playing uh, uh, seldom played music, right, your experience, your your, uh, musical intuition is so expanded, I think, and develops at a much greater level because you are into these um, distant musical realms, I think. It's very, very important to, to play a v- variety of styles and a variety of national st- schools and variety of um, historical periods, I think, too. Well,
1: we're talking about history, and, and that's certainly one of my interests, but my, my early training in music began with 20th century. Mm-hmm. I studied, before I studied Beethoven and Mozart, I studied Stravinsky, Britain, Bernstein. So I grew up with and understood contemporary music. One of the things that's so sad is contemporary music for the organ is all but gone. During the Neo-Baroque, the people played basically the Bach and his friends, and then everything that followed it was so highly dissonant that it turned off people, and today only a handful of people are writing, and none of the big companies is publishing. We're down to, uh, what's it, John, Morningstar, uh, Concordia. What are the companies now? None of the great big companies are publishing much of anything, and none of them include organ music.
2: It's very rare to see an American company that will invest the time and effort to creating sheet music for the organ, much less maintaining it. Wayne Leopold does a great job with
1: uh, with music, but it's not generally brand new music. The hardest sell in the world is is getting a publisher to take on a brand new piece of music. for For the most part, the new music that is published is based on a hymn tune or some t- other tune that uh, the congregation could conceivably mm-hmm. recognize. And it's generally very simple, um uh, and technically, um, not of the highest quality.
0: Yeah, uh, you're mentioning a very important uh, idea here, Michael and John. Um, you know this diminishing uh, number of music <clears throat> music publishers who would uh, risk risk the idea of publishing uh, the new and, uh, and uh, original repertoire, not based on pre-existing, uh, you know, choral melodies or uh, hymn melodies, and um, uh, do you think that uh, it's because of of uh, lack of interest from the listeners' part, or do they fear fear that um, there are some other factors in, uh, at work here?
1: Well, I've, John can speak to the listeners, but I'll say from the publishing standpoint, we just had the announcement and uh, distribution of a brand new Bach edition. Mm-hmm. Now, We've had Bach editions from one to another, to another, to another, and now we have a beautiful but expensive brand new Bach edition with supposedly the best scholarship. And and you know, while that's really very good and it's great that it's gonna be interest in Bach, do we really need to have another bach edition which if you buy the whole thing would be hundreds of dollars the same thing is true with the listening to the radio if you listen to a classical music station you're going to hear bach and you're going to hear mozart and you're going to hear beethoven you're going to hear the same people over and over again so from the presentation point it is really i think people are scared i really think the publishers are just scared they're going to get um 500 copies of a piece that's written, it's brand new, and it's going to sit there and nobody's going to buy it. I think that's what they're scared of. So they stick with uh, with Bach or uh, John. Isn't there a new, uh, wasn't there a, a, a couple of years ago, there's a beautiful edition from Paris of uh, Rene, um, yeah, tell us, the Rene Vierne. And it was beautiful, but Rene Vierne at least is an unknown you know, as opposed to J.S. Bach, who is pretty much at the top of the of the ladder. Mm-hmm.
2: This small French publisher has published a number of editions and we tried to obtain this and found that they had printed a certain number and it had run out and they had really no active plan for reprinting more of it. So this was the brother of Louis Vierne, who di- who died in World War I and uh, he produced a small body of, of organ pieces which have largely not been available and so consequently here's an addition that quote is available but yet it's not.
1: I came to find out that the reason that it was so difficult to work with the, um, with their company is that their company was pretty much wholly funded by the French culture uh, authority, that they received money to do their beautiful addition, very well done, uh, but they received the money to do that from the French cultural authority. So they really didn't have an interest in selling it because they got paid.
2: The music that you end up hearing, if we end up uh, looking at performances of music up until into the 19th century, late 19th century, consisted of music that was new, that there was really not much of an interest in, in old music when we look at the music of Bach, which the complete edition began in 1850 and finished in, I believe, 1899 or 1900, that it was rare to really have performances and interest on the part of performers and audiences for old music. But as more and more interest began with resurrecting older music, we've come more and more in our performances particularly of live music to have more interest in music that is by dead composers than by living composers and that if you attend an orchestral concert for example you might have a 10-minute piece that's by a living composer maybe at the beginning of the program not at the end of the program and so consequently the whole aspect of the importance of music from our own time has been completely reversed to give a an importance to the past and not the present
0: yes that's the gr- the great uh, the great shift of 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 ideas happening at in our age because um, everybody wants to play classics right and not only these classics from the 17th century or 15th century or the 16th century but 18th century the the the, the great uh, baroque music perhaps uh, a little bit of romantic music but but mostly uh, very popular music right uh, mendelssohn and uh, schumann and probably brahms and uh, frank a little bit of wiern if they can uh, manage the technical uh, pieces and of course mm-hmm. the vidor other than that uh, it's it's very rare to find uh, with general population among organists not not pr- too professional you know uh, that they would have interest in playing anything modern or even avant-garde you know so.
1: That reminds me of something. <clears throat> One of the things I love to mention uh, when I when I send out my announcements is how many composers that that are on the list that you just mentioned. How many of the classical types, the ones that are played all the time, were actually organists? Uh, let, let John give them a few and see uh, see if you think it's organist or non-organist.
0: Gabriel Foray. Of course organist, organist, or organist how
1: about
2: elgar
0: oh, Elgar should have been organist, I think too
2: yes, he was uh-huh um uh,
0: Beethoven uh, he certainly played organ, yeah, yeah, definitely yes,
2: in fact, he called the organist the greatest of virtuosos
0: uh-huh um
2: Camille sasson
0: definitely organist, yeah. Franz Liszt. Absolutely, yeah. At one point, he he played uh, uh, at uh, at uh, Schwerin Cathedral in Lade, uh, with Vladegast organ. Yeah, he he was an organist too. So we
1: we go on, and and there are a few of them who are not. Bruckner, for example, Absolutely. organist.
0: Organist too, yeah. And uh, Mozart, uh, if we continue, Mendelssohn, yeah. right? Let's let's uh, Chopin too, uh, and um, and um, w- many other classically classically trained uh, composers that we cherish today as symphonic or opera composers. Yes, they 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 started out and acted as organist uh, for many years. Yes, Leo DeLib, the ballet
2: uh, yeah. composer
0: was an organist. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And a uh, lots of, of French composers too because they had this strong uh, institute uh, uh, for the blind youth, you remember? And uh, lots of uh, blind musicians uh, started to play organ there in Paris. And uh, one was Vern, of course. And another was Gaston Littes and uh, from the later period, of course, and lots and lots of French people who couldn't see—they were blind, uh, either born blind or became blind later on from illnesses. They were taught playing the organ, you know. So uh, the organ was and is still a very important, uh, at least should be, very important instrument in their education.
2: Even Claude Debussy. Um, had some identity with the organ there is a fugue he wrote in when he was at the Paris conservatory
0: also brahms absolutely Brahms, together with uh, Schumann and Clara Wieck, remember this uh, uh, wife of Robert Schumann, they they formed a circle of friends, basically three friends uh, getting together and studying counterpoint and music of Bach and uh, playing the organ too.
2: Yes, uh, this is really quite amazing when you look at how many composers throughout the last at least 500 years. Uh, many of them had some type of training in their musical training and identity with the organ.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah, we need that. We need that. But but unfortunately, organ departments are closing. Yeah. Here in the United States, we've lost organ departments, and sometimes they're folded into performing arts with an organ division. But then sometimes they just close it all together.
0: Uh, You know, when I finished my doctorate degree studies at University of Nebraska Lincoln uh, with uh, Professor uh, Quentin Faulkner and George Ritchie, they both retired after I and my wife Oshra left. The same year, two full-time professors retired, organ professors retired, and instead of two professors, they uh, hired one half-time pro, uh, organ professor, uh, who had to teach organ part-time, and another part-time was uh, music theory uh, classes, he taught. Um, a wonderful musician, by the way, an organist, and um, Christopher Marx is his name. So, basically, the whole organ department uh, got uh, smaller and smaller, smaller by the day.
2: What I find is uh, even at places such as the University of Michigan, that uh, was near where I grew up, that um, had Marilyn Mason, Robert Glasgow, and Robert Clark, along with one or two other people who assisted uh, back in the 70s and the 80s. And now that Marilyn Mason has retired after the longest uh, career probably as a Professor in a university, that um, the department has become less. And the music school, I'm told, there is, uh, they're dealing more with music and dance, not just, not simply a school of music. So there's a whole shift in the administration's viewpoint as to what the prominence of the performance of music is. And that has an effect consequently on, on the organ as a performing instrument. Yeah, and some of the organs that have been built in this
1: country, it, it, you may speak to this for Europe, I don't know how what it is in Europe, but in this country we tend to view the orchestral or the, the auditorium municipal organ as a showcase. It's there to show we have money or the family that donates it has money or look, it's really pretty. And we end up with a a grand organ that sits there and isn't played. The orchestra doesn't use it. There's no concerts. There's no recitals. It just sits there. Uh, Look at Verizon hall. Mm -hmm. It's used roughly once a year. Look at the the great auditorium organs that for the most part, just sit there and they're not
0: used. And even university organ halls, right? Concert halls. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The same is with them. Uh, most of the university concert halls uh, have organs installed in in previous generations, probably, but uh, they give organ concerts very seldom.
1: How how often is the organ uh, at St. John's used?
0: Um, for the most part, every every Saturday. Oh, excellent! Uh, Yeah, not every Saturday, but uh, uh, at least a few times a month uh, we have, um, you know, a solid uh, solid spot for for the uh, organ and other music uh, concerts and recitals on Saturday evening, 6 p.m., so whenever we have the possibility we play the organ there.
2: What is the audience? Uh, number approximately that comes to an organ
0: concert there. It depends who is playing, you see. Uh, it depends who is, uh, who uh, who the audience knows. Because uh, throughout the years that I, I'm working, I think f- since 2007 there, and um, coordinate these concert series there, and try to promote the, the organ there, and um, it depends who is playing, you know. If my music fans, organ music fans, uh, doesn't, uh, don't know the the f- performer, then it would be uh, my responsibility, of course, to to make uh, this organist uh, uh, trustworthy and uh, remarkable enough so that they would come. Uh, but um, it depends, re- really. Uh, sometimes. Uh, um the the better job uh, the the organist uh, does in promotion of uh, h- herself or himself, making. Uh, trust uh, keeping the trust level high between his fans or her fans, then it pays off you know there's a, there are uh, social media networks you can you can follow and promote and blogs and video youtube channels not too many people do this but who who invest the time and effort is over time it 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 becomes a very good asset
2: yes. Well, there was an article that was written by Gordon Balk Nevin back in the 1920s. He's one of the composers that we publish and is known for his piece, Will the Wisp. He wrote this article that says that you really should emphasize having your local performers for the very reasons you were talking about, that if it's somebody the people know in the region, that uh, it's very good to have your local performers to uh, perform programs because you'll more than likely get a bigger, as big or bigger audience than for those you may pay a lot more money for to come in from outside.
0: Exactly, you know in, uh, in about in 2009 or 10 i believe we had a concert uh, recital organ recital given by um gibove the famous uh, uh, swiss organist and um, he of course is one of the few most famous living organists in the world so i i had the privilege of organizing this concert in, in our church st john's church and i was lucky to get um a little bit of advertisement on tv national tv network and, and you know the church was packed and everything was packed because i <laughs> advertised him as the living legend or sort sort of like uh, the most famous living organist in the world basically this was my my tagline or the the promotional idea uh, and that wor- worked actually uh of course uh, you know there are other very famous organists in the world but gibove is, is certainly among them Thank you so much, Michael and John, for caring. And uh, would you please tell our listening listeners across the globe uh, where they can find you and your work online? Uh, everything is at michaelsmusicservice.com. Mm. The
1: music, the, the, the free audio files, uh, the blog, everything is there, michaelsmusicservice.com. We're also on Facebook, if that matters, and I'm on Twitter. I have people all over the world who, who talk organ on Twitter.
0: Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. So um, I'll make sure to in, um, to include these all these links into our conversation, and I wish I wish you great success with uh, resurrecting old music and uh, giving it a second chance. Thank you very much. Thanks. Musical examples for today's conversation were taken from michaelsmusicservice.com and you can find uh, much more uh, information about the composers even free mp3s, scores from that website. Make sure you visit their blog and subscribe to it and their wonderful or interesting organ music links from all over the world will come to your email inbox. This conversation continues in part 2. We will meet Michael and John next Sunday. Stay tuned. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog Secrets of Organ Playing at organduo.lt where you will find lots of insights, practical advice, and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration, and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vidas Pinkavichus. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you online really soon.